I invite you this morning to turn with me to the Word of God as we find it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. If you're visiting here today, we have been working our way through this letter, a series on Galatians. The Galatians were a group of people, ethnic group that lived in an area now known as Turkey. And they'd come to faith and become believers. But the problem was that there were also Jewish people there, Jewish Christians even, who told them, well, you're not a believer until you also become a Jew. In other words, your Christian faith is an add-on to the law. And ultimately, that's what it's about. And so that's what these people started to do, these Galatians. They, they began to, to accept what the Jewish teachers taught them. And so Paul's writing here is a reaction to that. I'm going to read chapter 3, the verses 1 through 9 together. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now our, our text is verses 1 through 5. And at the end of verse 5, there's a hyphen there, which is an interpretive decision. There's actually a period in the original language, so the sentence does end at verse 5. So we'll take verses 1 through 5 as our text and focus on that, especially closely this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what makes a good sermon? It's a question I ask my younger catechism students sometimes. What makes a good sermon? It's interesting to hear the answers that you get back. It's good for us to reflect on the question as well. What does make a good sermon? Some people might say, well, a good sermon is one that is fiery, one with a lot of passion and emotion, 
in it so that we can see that the message matters to the preacher. Others might say a sermon needs to be practical. Just tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Give me something to do. There's probably different things that you could add as to what makes a good sermon. But what is the one essential ingredient that should never be missing in any sermon in order for it to be a good sermon? Well, that one thing is the gospel. A good sermon should bring you the gospel. The gospel should be front and central. The gospel is never about what we should do. There are many churches in the world today where a false gospel is preached. False gospel says you need to add something to the work of Christ. It could be good works, like the Roman Catholics. It could be self-improvement, like the prosperity gospel, or maybe even your local community church. It could even be a warped view of covenantal thinking, which you sometimes find among Reformed people as well, very subtly, in which God saves us, and now it's up to us to stay in the covenant. All of those are wrong. In today's text, we are very clearly told not to finish what God has started because the gospel is about God's work of salvation from beginning to end. Do not finish what God has started. You began with his spirit. You need to continue with his spirit. And that is also what we will be looking at this, this morning. Now, there are many people out there who think that the Bible is a book about morality. They think if you want to be a better person, then the Bible will tell you how to do it. And since most people are pretty sure that they're not that bad to begin with, they feel that they don't really need the Bible. They don't bother reading it at all. But the Bible is not about becoming a good person. If anything, the Bible teaches us the opposite. It teaches us that by nature, all people are sinners regardless of who they are. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says that apart from the regenerating work of God, you are dead in your sins. And a dead person cannot improve himself. The Canons of Dort, chapter 2, articles 1 and 2, summarizes it by saying that God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. And as he himself has revealed in his word, his justice requires that our sins, committed against his infinite majesty, should be punished, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, both in body and soul. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is made to the justice of God. We ourselves, however, cannot make the satisfaction and cannot free ourselves from God's wrath. Not a lot of room for self-improvement there. The story of the Bible is a story of how God brought about that satisfaction by bringing Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died for sinners. And the canons of Dort go on to say, God, therefore, in his infinite mercy, has given his only begotten Son as our surety. For, for us or in our place, he was made sin and a curse on the cross, so that he might make satisfaction on our behalf. 
And God's intent to save sinners goes all the way back. Already right after the fall into sin, he promised that one day he would send a Savior who would crush the head of Satan. And verse 8 of our reading even reminds us of that. It says that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And before that, in Genesis 12, he had already promised he would bless all nations through Abraham. He already planned to have the gospel preached from the very beginning. And the Jewish people knew that. They knew that the gospel was meant for all people. But they assumed, they assumed that that meant that those nations would become Jewish. You see, being Jewish was a, a very exclusive thing. And there were not that many people that were added to, to the Jews over the years. You can think of some exceptions like Rahab, for example. But the prophets did say, the great prophets, Isaiah, Zechariah, and others, that many of them testified that one day the gates would be opened and many people would join, many other nations would join God's people. But the, the Jewish teachers said, well, that means that they are going to become Jewish. The men will become circumcised and they will all submit themselves to the law. So when the Galatians became Christians, there were Jewish Christians there who were called Judaizers. And those Judaizers were teaching them that they had to follow the Jewish faith. They said, you're a Christian, that's great. But now you need to keep all the laws of Moses. And in teaching this, they missed the point entirely. The law was there to point out transgression. It was there to confront people with their inability. It was there to make people realize their need for a Savior. It was there to, to illustrate to them, using their own life, how high of a standard of holiness God demands. That's what the law was for. They realized, they needed to realize their need for a Savior. They needed a Savior to take away their sins forever. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is that Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He is not an add-on to our own works. He is not an addition to our own efforts. He is the Savior, the only one. How do you receive that Savior? You receive him through faith. You hear the gospel. You believe what it says about you. You believe what it says about God, and you're saved. That's what Paul refers to in verse 2 and 5 when he refers to hearing by faith. Therefore, a good sermon will always preach the true gospel. That means it will always present Christ. Every sermon needs to present Christ. Every sermon needs to present his abiding significance today. Paul refers to that in verse 1. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, he preached so vividly, so relevantly, that it was as if they saw Christ crucified before them all over again. As if they saw it happen, so to speak, and as if they realized this was for me. And Paul had focused on the perfect life of Christ, on his suffering on his death, on his resurrection. He'd focused on Jesus as the substitution for sinners. 
and his death as atonement for their sins. He had called the people to repentance and faith. He had done this so vividly that it was as if they saw it happen before them. And that's what a good sermon needs to do today as well. A sermon that does not point you to your own sin, a sermon that does not confront you with your own need, is a bad sermon. People might like it, but that is a bad sermon. It is a false gospel, and that is what the Judaizers had been preaching. They had essentially suggested that as long as you follow the Jewish customs, as long as you do all of these Jewish things, God will be pleased with you. And Paul says to his his Galatian hearers, who has bewitched you? And the who here is, is singular, isn't it? There is a person who has bewitched them. He's essentially suggesting this comes from the devil. Any church where repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins is not preached is a false church where the devil is active. Paul, of course, refers not just to Jesus Christ, but also to the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Because the gospel alone was not enough. Now you might think, hold on, did I hear that right? The gospel alone is not enough. Didn't he just tell us that the gospel alone is all you need? Listen carefully. The gospel alone is not enough. The Spirit also needs to work in people's hearts in order for them to understand. Because the gospel is preached to many people who listen but do not hear. Maybe there are some in our midst this morning who are listening but not hearing. Not hearing with faith. That is to say, they are not convicted. It doesn't touch them personally. And this does happen. And it does happen even in church. There are actually, believe it or not, people out there who love to hear sermons where they are told how bad they are. Where they are told that they are wicked and sinful. Then they go home and say to themselves, boy, the minister really laid it on hard today. We really are sinners. It's almost like an emotional purging for them, a catharsis. Like they were told off, and now, now they, they took it, and now they can go home and live life as they please again. It's a really strange thing when you actually see that. And maybe you see it more in some places than others, but it is a thing. And the sad part is that these people are not converted. They've talked a lot about sin. They might have even said things about their own need, but in the end they have never owned it. And the Galatians were converted. Paul does not doubt that for a moment. He writes to them as people who were converted. They've strayed, but they are not unbelievers. These are people who have converted. How is that possible? How is it possible that they heard the gospel and believed because of the Holy Spirit? That's how it works for all of us. By nature, we are not able to understand the gospel. By nature, our hearts are closed. If you're sitting here today and you're disinterested or you feel resistance and resentment in your heart at this message, if your heart is closed to God's grace, well, that's evidence, isn't it, of the power of sin in your life. Scripture teaches us that by nature, our hearts are closed to God's grace. In Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul writes that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, that's all of us. We come into this world stillborn. 
Maybe not physically, but spiritually by nature. We're dead in our sins. And we will remain that way unless the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. How do you know if the Holy Spirit works in your heart? Because you believe. Because you are convicted. Because you repent. The Bible teaches that repentance is a gift of God. It's not something that you can do yourself apart from His work in your heart. Consider what happened to the Galatians. People who came from a heathen background. Do you know what that means? It means that they knew nothing about the Bible. It means that they came from a culture that was sexually immoral, highly promiscuous, full of double standards. And they liked it that way. Or look at Paul himself. Consider what he wrote about himself in 1 verse 13 of this very letter about his life before he came to faith. He says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. This was his life. This was everything he lived for. To find this gospel of grace and to root it out no matter where it was. To stamp it out from the face of the earth. And people like that don't just change their mind. They don't just turn back on their own. And when they do come to faith, it is a supernatural event. It is something. Paul did not plan to be struck down by the Spirit on the the road to Damascus. This was something that happened to him that was completely out of his control. And These people, these Galatians, had also been called out of their heathen beliefs and practices. They had received, it says in verse 2, the Holy Spirit. See, he's, he's writing to them. He's not saying, well, I guess he didn't have the Holy Spirit after all. No, he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's implying you did receive the Spirit. You had the Holy, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit... It's echoed in verse 5 again, this, this, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, had actually taken up residence in their hearts. Now God is able to work in people's hearts without taking up residence. For example, he can even work in the hearts of unbelievers. Think, for example, Isaiah 45, verse 5, um, Cyrus, the heathen king. It says, God says there to him, although you do not know me, And then he goes on to say that he's still going to use Cyrus to, to um, bring his people back. So, so the Lord can work in people's hearts. The Lord can prompt people. But the Lord, the Holy Spirit, does not dwell in people. He does not take a permanent residence in them unless they are cleansed from their sins first. How are they cleansed from their sins? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit needs to have a holy temple in which to dwell. A temple is his church, and individually he dwells in the hearts of all believers. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. And he dwelt in the Galatians. And according to verse 5, Of our text, he'd even worked miracles 
among them. It seems that there were not just miracles accompanying the preaching of the gospel, which was common in the early years of the church, but, but there were even some miracles that apparently happened among the Galatians themselves. It was still ongoing. He works. Now, we're not as used to that anymore. You do sometimes still hear about miraculous things happening. But the miracles is not really the point here anyway. It's, um, the physical miracles is in the background as it is often in Scripture. The greatest miracle of all is something that we have all witnessed. The greatest miracle of all is repentance and faith. It is such a miracle that according to Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12, it is equal, equally miraculous as creation and the raising from the dead. That's a miracle that we should be looking for. That's the miracle that happens here among us every time that people come to faith. Every time that, that people grow in their faith, that the faith is maintained in spite of difficult circumstances. Don't you ever, ever just sit back and reflect on the miraculous in your own life? Or have you no eye anymore for miracles? There are many in Pentecostal or charismatic circles who expect physical miracles as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Often those end up being what they call speaking in tongues, which is actually not real speaking in tongues. And other things, sometimes strange things. But that's not at the foreground at all here. Whether or not those, those signs are, are, are what people say they are is a whole different sermon. But the point here is that, that the Holy Spirit brings faith, not just signs. Faith is something that we all share. Saving faith is confessing that you are a sinner, that you can only find salvation in the blood of Christ. How did you get the Holy Spirit, he asks? Not by works of the law, not by getting circumcised, not by keeping the commandments of Moses. It happened by hearing through faith. The Holy Spirit worked in your heart. You believed. He took up residence in you. Works of the law had nothing to do with that. If you go back to the law, you're not just going against Scripture. He's saying you're going against your own experience. You know, we, we by nature are people who tend to rely sometimes more heavily on experience than we should. But Paul says even if you go back to your own experience... Your own experiences in the past contradict what you're doing now. Why are you doing this? It makes no sense. And the same is true for us today. How were we saved? Through hearing with faith in the exact same way that these Galatians were saved. Through hearing the gospel preached every Sunday. That's the same way the Galatians were saved. It is the same way that Abraham was saved. Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, the man that everybody looked up to with respect. Abraham. Father Abraham. They said he kept the law perfectly. You might say, well, how's that possible? The law didn't come till 400 years later. Yes, but, but Abraham knew the law before it was given. That's what they taught. He knew the law. He was so righteous. He knew the law before it was given. He kept it perfectly. That was to them Abraham. The Judaizers told the Galatians, if you want to become righteous, become Jewish, 
and your first work of obedience is to become circumcised. But when was Abraham declared righteous? Not after circumcision, but before. Abram believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. God had promised him that he would have innumerable descendants. In other words, God would honor the promise that he had made to him in Genesis chapter 12, that through him all nations would be blessed. This was the gospel promise. The gospel promise that they would be blessed through the coming Messiah, who would be a Jew. Abram believed that. Abram believed God's promise. Abram believed what God said, and God declared him righteous on the basis of that faith. So, so Paul is suggesting, you know, this is a little bit odd, that, that you Judaizers, these Judaizers, they keep on focusing on circumcision. It's like they're leaving out half of the story. Circumcision came after the covenant, after, as a sign of the covenant, Even Abram himself was already righteous before circumcision. He was righteous by faith. The covenant didn't come until after. The Galatians shared in that faith. They shared in that righteousness. And Paul is saying to them, look, why are you going back to a prior period in the history of salvation? It's almost like you're turning the light down instead of up. Why go back to circumcision? Why go back to law-keeping for its own sake when what God really wants is faith? We could could ask ourselves the same question. By nature, we are inclined to distrust things that are free. Don't we distrust that? You go somewhere, you buy something, you pay for it. And then they say, by the way, can we have your email address and phone number? And we'll enter you in a draw for a gift voucher or something. Well, there's always strings attached, aren't there? It always comes at a cost. Most things that appear to be free actually come with some kind of string, strings attached. As they say, only the sun rises for free. Everything else comes with conditions. So this idea of free grace, this, this makes us feel uneasy on a very deep level. The human mind is always trying to calculate in the background, always trying to add something. Always trying to work it out. And, and we do the same thing. We say, yes, you're saved by grace, but make sure you keep the law. Yes, you are free from condemnation, but if you don't keep up a certain appearance, well, we're going to judge you anyway. So it's possible to be reformed, to say that you're saved by grace, but to still have a lot of uncertainty in your life when it comes to works. And that's where the Galatians were at. Yes, you can have the gospel if you just get circumcised and keep the Jewish calendar. Then we'll talk about Jesus. But as we saw previously, you can't have it both ways. Either you are saved by grace or you are saved by works. But you cannot have it both ways. Grace, by definition, is God's undeserved favor. As soon as you add a work, it stops being grace. And that's where the Galatians were at. They were trying to add to the complete work of Christ. But if it is complete, then you shouldn't have to add anything anymore. And if you add to it anyway, they're saying it wasn't complete. right? The the Catechism echoes this beautifully 1,500 years later. You know this. 
Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus Christ. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Do you realize that there's a profound irony in this text? In their efforts to become true believers, these people had actually turned away from the true Jewish roots. The true Jewish roots are not works. The way that they, that, that was misrepresented later on was a work of the rabbis who, who meant well, but ended up developing it into a system of, of works righteousness. But the true Jewish roots were the same roots that we have. Justification by faith. That's what Abraham had done. They already were acceptable to God through faith in Christ. And the same thing is true for you today. If you are a believer, if you are saved through faith in Christ, if your sins are cleansed in his blood, if his spirit dwells in you, there is nothing that you can do to make you more acceptable to God than you already are at this very moment. And that does not mean that we are passive. That's the most evil heresy of all that we are saved, and now we can just rest at ease. There is a rest of a sort in that we are secure in salvation, but there is no rest in the sense that now you get to live as if nothing has happened, as if you just get to clock your time here on Sunday, so to speak, and then then the rest of the week is for you. No, 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 no. If you truly understood what happened, if you actually understood the gospel, You would never do that. You don't try to finish what God has started, but you also don't become indifferent or passive in your walk of faith. Precisely because you began with the Spirit, you must also continue with the Spirit. That's our second point. Continue with the Spirit. These people have not been doing that, and Paul is angry with his converts. He chastises them. He says to them in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are being perfected by the flesh. You got to this point and now you're trying to go the rest of the way yourself. What does he mean by flesh? Having begun by the Spirit, verse 3, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What does he mean by flesh? Well, flesh has a range of meanings and Paul's writings. Often it's a shorthand for the the sinful nature. But here flesh really uh, is contrasted with spirit. Flesh is the the repository of human life. Flesh is is, is all that is weak and fragile and sinful and fallible and mortal about us. Flesh. All that is prone to sin. And he's saying to them, what are you doing? You're going back to this? What are you expecting? Why are you doing this? And he's saying to them, look, you people have, have suffered a great deal, also suffered in the flesh, you could say. Do you realize that? They had believed the true gospel previously, and they had suffered a great deal, and he reminds them of that in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? So these are people who have suffered. Why do you think they suffered? Well, there were many other areas in Paul's mission trips where the true believers suffered because, often because of the Jews, the rightful heirs of the gospel who who were rejecting it. 
Paul often started his ministry in a synagogue and eventually he would be expelled. Then he would continue among the Gentiles. In Acts 14 verse 2, for example, we read that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That was in Iconium. That's also a part of that sort of general Asian area. And they suffered because of Gentile persecution as well. But much of the opposition that Paul experienced in his ministry came from the Jews who rejected the gospel. And Paul is saying to them, this makes no sense at all. These people persecuted you. They made you suffer a great deal. And now you're being persuaded by their arguments. What's going on? It makes no sense. But it's tempting. And again, it is basic to who we are as human beings. We can get this idea in our mind that we are saved by grace, but now in order to stay saved, we need to do works. And sometimes that comes out in a very subtle way. You would never say it that way. But you might throw yourself into church life and you feel anxious when you're not volunteering and giving 110% in all possible capacities. It's as if you have to earn your place in the kingdom, so to speak. Now, obviously, we're not saying that everybody who volunteers a lot thinks that way. That's not the point. It's wonderful when people volunteer. It's a beautiful thing to, to volunteer. I read an American survey the other day that your average church member gives eight hours of volunteer, volunteering per week to their church community. In our circles, that might be more... Um, likely of the office bearers, and I'm not sure exactly how this, this survey was, was held, but probably for most of you, if you include the time that you spend, you know, maybe baking a cake for someone or um, being involved in, in, in something church-related um, or even visiting someone as encouragement, it might not be eight hours a week, but it probably averages out to some amount of time per week. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing if we can do that. But in doing so, we should, never, we should never do this because we would feel like less of a Christian if we didn't do it. It is such a hard thing to receive grace. We might believe that we needed it in the past, but the rest is up to us. Like that well-known hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. The rest is up to me. It's not how it goes. But that's often how we live, isn't it? Why do we think that way? Is it, is it pride? Is it that we think so highly of ourselves? Almost as if, well, as if we want to say to the Lord, well, you... You found us in a dis disreputable state. Sorry about that, but now that we've been cleaned up, now um, we'll take it from here. Thank you. You know, we can have a church community of people that have it all together. Is, is that what we want? It's almost as if we think once we've been cleaned up, we promise we'll stay that way. That's not what a text is suggesting. It's suggesting that there is never a time when you can be perfected by the flesh. You always need the Spirit. You will always need sanctification. You will always need grace. You will always need the Lord. And these are good and necessary parts of being a Christian. 
And maybe we, we sometimes feel like we don't appreciate the gospel enough. And maybe, again, you've been sitting here this morning and you're tuning out or you're listening on the live feed and you've gone to make yourself a cup of coffee. We don't really appreciate the gospel enough. We think we've heard it all before. Well, is that maybe because we've actually subconsciously been working for it? Because you don't appreciate the things that you work for. Scripture says that. Romans 4 verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What do you do when you get your, your pay deposited at the end of the pay period? Well, you don't say thank you to your employer every time. You take it for granted, right? You go and take it. You do with it what you can. You don't reflect on the marvel of grace because it wasn't grace. You worked for it. Is that maybe what we sometimes do in our faith life as well? We should throw ourselves into church life, but not to earn our place. Rather, because a church is the gospel of the body of Christ, and we want to care for the body of Christ. We want to see each other flourish. We're invested in each other's lives. We love each other. But don't focus only on the church, apart from Christ, as this community of people where you belong and, and find your place, and that supports you completely divorced from the gospel that brought it all to life in the first place. Don't finish what God has started. Don't even try, says Paul. You began with the gospel, now continue with it. You began with his spirit, continue with his spirit. But now look at this. Pay very careful attention because now we have the gospel again. In the very act of rebuking them, he is bringing the gospel to them again. His message is it's not just enough to receive the gospel. It also has to be maintained in your life. The gospel of grace, isn't that exactly what he's doing by rebuking them? Isn't he giving them grace? He's speaking these words of rebuke to them. He's drawing them back to the Lord when they've strayed. Isn't that what the gospel is about? So isn't, isn't him reminding them of the gospel actually an instance of the gospel at work? In that reminding, do you understand? They were starting to drift they couldn't have corrected their own course. They were unable to do so, so Paul does it for them. He uses a gospel to do so. He's showing them grace here. This is God's grace to people that are turning away from him. And the same grace is extended to us today. We too are urged by our text not to try and finish what God has started. You began with the Spirit, you continue with the Spirit. Pay attention to the gospel. The Canons of Dort puts it so beautifully in chapter 5, article 14. It says, Just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So it's saying God began this work in your life, he began his work of grace in you by the preaching of the gospel. How does he continue it? Not by our works, says the canons, but by the hearing and reading of his word. That includes listening to the preaching of the gospel in church. Don't skip the worship services. Don't neglect gathering together. This is where God works. And he uses the reading of his work, his word, 
He uses the reading of his word as well. So don't let Sunday, that's the second bit that we pull out of the canons, don't let Sunday be the only day that you open your Bible. Read it during the week. Read it with your family. If you're married, meditate on it. Meditation means you turn it over in your mind. You contemplate it. You ponder it. You have it in the back of your mind. You memorize it. You consider its exhortations, its threats, and its promises. What's an exhortation? It's a strong encouragement. The gospel encourages us when we're weak. It grabs us. It shakes us. It says, focus. This is grace. This is for you. And the gospel threatens us. It threatens us when we're we're foolish or lazy or dismissive of God's grace. You think about that. When you look at how the gospel is abused in so many other churches that are sometimes just large community gatherings, how often do you think these people are ever threatened by the gospel? The gospel threatens us. It says to us, listen, there is a point of no return in the Christian faith. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us, make sure that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now the reason, of course, was because he was never a true believer to begin with. But he was a church member. He was part of the covenant. And so if you are not a true believer, then take this opportunity to repent. Do not dismiss the grace of God. Do not put it off. Do not harden yourself. Or you may find one day that there, is no more, there are no more opportunities. Finally, says the canons of Dort, God maintains, continues, and perfects his work of grace in us by the use of the sacraments. We saw the sacrament of baptism today. It was a visual depiction of God's grace, a visual illustration of his promise to cleanse all who turn to him in faith. And that promise was made to little Avery personally before she could do anything to respond to it. The promise always comes first. And we are always reminded of God's promises. We need to be busy with these things Never as something that you add to, but as something that God adds to us. Because those are the means by which he works out out grace in us. So we need to take responsibility for our own faith. We saw a baptism, but Avery will grow up. As she experiences God's grace, she's going to have to learn to continue in it. And her parents have the duty and the solemn responsibility to instruct her in this. And we all need to continue together. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, Paul is writing to a different church, and he he speaks to them about the day when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and he says to them, You believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you have the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And the Holy Spirit enables us to continue living a faithful Christian life. So you never stop needing God. You never stop needing grace. You never stop needing Christ. You never stop needing His Spirit. 
That is why a good church will preach Christ every time, not just for those who are coming for the first time. And a good sermon is one that presents Christ to you and that extends God's grace to you. May the gospel continue its work in our midst as well. Amen.